Hey, one quick thing before we get started. I just want to remind you that this podcast is for information, education, and entertainment. It is not a substitute for therapy or therapeutic intervention. If you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or contact a crisis hotline. Hey, welcome back to the Labors of Love podcast. This is your co-host, Hedy Nam, and I'm really excited to have a special guest here with me today. But first, shout out to my founding co-host, Shonda Sugg, who is away on an amazing adventure, which I'm sure she'll come back and talk to us about next week. Um, For this week's podcast, I have with me TJ Firestone, who is a multidisciplinary creative throughout the audio and visual spectrum. He's a designer, writer, performer, amongst many other things. And one of the roles he plays in this lifetime is my life partner and husband. So welcome, TJ, to Labors of Love podcast show. Yo, thank you. That was a nice introduction. Yeah. Well, it's fun to have you here. Um, I'm just going to start it off like we do with all of our other guests and ask you, what is your labor of love? Well, my labor of love is uh, bringing a sense of lightness, joy, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and say whimsy too. Whimsy. Throw whimsy in there. Yeah? Yeah. And yeah, bringing the light in. conversation so yeah say more i love that we live in such dark challenging times and it feels like you can't go a day without being confronted with terrible news of violence in the world and just every conversation i get into it always ends up somewhere where we blame late stage capitalism Mm -hmm. for everything going on and so i appreciate the levity you bring into my life but um, yeah, do you want to say more about your labor of love and why it's so, so important to you, where it came from? Yeah, so like there's there's no, from my experience, there's no lack of uh, cataclysmic, you know, humans doing shitty things to other humans. Mm-hmm. So if that is the constant, then I love to throw in that variable of, you know, um yeah like lightness humor um telling somebody a joke that is so dumb that it stops them in their tracks Mm -hmm. you know uh and they have to like take a second to process the dumbness (laughs) (laughs) and then they just like laugh out of uh uh embarrassment for me Um, yeah, I love that because I am a very serious person and I could and, uh, you know, I have no qualms about that. I used to. I actually wanted to be you. I wanted to be the funny guy that hmm. made people laugh. And I was like, oh, no, I'm like the one that tells people about the injustice in the world. And um, there is a story in um, this book that Samantha Power wrote about how 
we coined the term genocide and all the different genocides in the world. And the guy who coined it, he was so passionate about it that at every party he went to, people would avoid him because they would know that he would start talking about genocide. Mm. And it's not that people didn't respect him. They just didn't want to use their leisure and social time for that. And yeah. so I I was afraid to become that person. Um, and so I try to manage myself um but yeah i love that while we're in a really deep conversation you can tell me a stupid joke and it it does scramble my brain of like oh <laughs> like life doesn't have to be serious and heavy all the time what was that guy's name i forgot the coined oh well like if you just break down the word genocide the suffix side c-i-d-e means mm. to kill off right so uh that's going to be a tough sell at a party, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and and I have no problem with why he was so passionate about it. I mean, he made a really big difference sure. in the world uh, with the evolution of international law and just being able to have that tool. But yeah, I don't know that I would want to hang out with him at a party. Yeah. So. Well, it's it's his delivery needed work, right? Yeah. It's um, it's kind of like Mary Poppins, you know, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. Mm -hmm. You know, you can use humor in that way. Obviously, this is, you know, I'm not telling anybody anything mind blowing. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, when dealing with serious stuff, um, you need it's it's like pacing, right? It's like story pacing. Mm -hmm. If all you have is somebody monologuing it's going to be pretty boring. Mm -hmm. So it's like you break those things up, you know, like serious chunk of information, humor, a mm -hmm. little bit of humor, serious chunk of information, a little bit of humor. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And I think part of it is, and I find this, I love stand-up comedy. I love comedy in general. And what I love is that these folks are, these things that we just take for granted are just, quote unquote, normal, acceptable, typical parts of everyday life. And they show you the absurdity of it. Right. You know? Well, a lot of that is based on observation. Like you can't uh, deconstruct certain aspects of a society unless you know it backwards and forwards. Mm -hmm. Right. Otherwise, you're just going to sound like a fool. Mm -hmm. So like somebody like, I don't know, the comedians that come to mind are like Lewis Black mm -hmm. or George Carlin mm -hmm. um, that they're like, if you didn't know it was stand up, it would almost be like a, a, like a high level sociology course. Right. You know what I mean? I mean, Lewis Black, his delivery is so over the top that there's no way you could mistake it for anything other than comedy. Yeah. But, you know, it's almost like, Comedians are these weird creatures that take the truth and and like distill it for the audience, mm -hmm. and they 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 turn up the dial on the absurdity or the hypocrisy so that it's like it's it's funny when when you say it when you explain it in in a certain delivery it's it just becomes like how could you not laugh it's so absurd. Well, what's funny is that it's both 
funny and true. Right. It feels like well, funny because there's basis in truth, right? Right. Like it kind of reminds me of the White House Correspondents Dinner. Like every single day for I mean, there's humor out in the rest of the world, but in that White House press briefing room, everything is super serious. And these reporters that go to their jobs every day, they, they're expected to write things down, do serious analysis of it, and they're not allowed to point out the absurd. Like, we hide behind this thing of facts, of like, we're here to report the facts. Yes, facts are very important. I'm not saying do fake news, but... I mean, when reporters show some emotion, whether it's like this is ridiculous or this is really sad, it it brings you a, to a different part of engaging with the reality of what they're saying. And at the once a year, one night a year, it feels like at the correspondence dinner, they're allowed to say all the ridiculous things going on in Washington politics and with the presidency and the White House. And they get let off the hook for it. And so, yeah, that's so fascinating that people who can say the truth in a humorous way, it's based on truth. But like when it's too hard hitting, people get angry at you for telling the truth. Sure. Versus if you make them laugh, they're like, eh, I see what you're saying. Well, that's that's interesting, too. Like I, I've. uh Medieval history, uh, the only one who could ever tell the king the truth to his face was the court jester mm -hmm. right right um so there's there's this kind of long-standing thing with with comedy and being able to tell the truth while making somebody laugh it's like yeah it's like that <laughs> i keep i hate keeping you know i hate to keep quoting mary poppins but you're on a mary poppins kick yeah today. i'm popping <laughs> i'm popping today um, yeah, I don't know. I think that's just, I, I also do that too, where I just, I will like, cause I love idioms mm -hmm. and I love using like, uh, metaphor and simile to, it's like in an episode of Star Trek where they say something really scientific and then somebody else that's not an engineering is like, oh, you mean like putting butter on toast? I'm like, exactly. Mm. So it's like, that's. I think that's what I do to like understand concepts is that, like I dumb it down for myself <laughs> mm -hmm. just so that I'm sure that I understand what was being said. Mm -hmm. And now some people will say, hey, I'm just being funny to be a funny guy or whatever. There's so many motivations, but you're saying it's specifically a labor of love. So tell me how the love mm. factors in to that. Yeah. Um so it it probably goes back to um my childhood where uh when i was 5 and my brother was 3 uh he contracted uh meningitis mm. and it kind of overwhelmed his young immune system quickly um and he passed away now um you know being a five-year-old you're i was only aware of you know the fact that something was wrong with my brother and it wasn't good 
and you know my parents were extremely upset um and i think i just took cuz i i was a goofy kid mm-hmm. i'm like i'm a goofy adult too so i think it was it just brought that out more mm-hmm. my goofiness um because like there's some part of me that oh dad is sad like mm-hmm. i'm going to do a stupid goofy face or something mm-hmm. you know like a yeah um to make him laugh mm-hmm. or like with my mom you know like reading her reading her the laffy taffy joke or whatever from the rapper mm-hmm. and just laughing even though like even as a 5 year old like i was like eh it's not that funny yeah those <laughs> jokes are kind of cringe like well yeah yeah. Let's see how you th- this How do you make a tissue dance? Put a little boogie in it. Oh god. And then just like laughing uproariously, you know? Yeah. My mom's like, what is wrong with you? She's probably laughing at you laughing more than yeah. a joke. Yeah. And I think, you know, I still do that. Mm-hmm. We're like, something is like, I really love dumb jokes. Like jokes that are so dumb that it like stops people in their tracks because it's so dumb, you know? Like it makes you cringe inside and you're embarrassed that that joke exists in the world. Um, I don't know if embarrassment comes into it. Yeah. I think it's just appreciation mm. that somebody would have written a joke that was that dumb. I- I'm trying to think of some specific, a lot of physical comedy. Like, I don't know. It's seen as like lowbrow, mm-hmm. but I just, I love it. I don't know yeah. why. It's just. I don't know. Little kids love physical comedy too. Like you ever mm-hmm. hang out with a little kid on the swing and you you push them and uh, you know they swing and you you act like they you know like they kicked you in the face and you're like, oh! and they like they laugh mm-hmm. they love it you know. Well, uh, it's physical comedy, but it's also again the ridiculousness because mm. they know that they did not kick you in the face. And the right. fact that you're pretending, right. you know? Right. Yeah. That's so funny. Um, so at our wedding, your mom gave a toast mm. that said, he's always had this warped sense of humor. Um, and she told a story of when you were probably like 18 months or something, you're playing hide and seek. At, or she, no, you weren't playing hide and seek because hide and seek... <laughs> the game suggests there was a level of consent and awareness. No, she, TG just hid from his mom and she was terrified and she was like, where is my baby? How do I explain to my husband when he gets home that I lost lost our son inside of our house? And she said every time she would um, like get colder, meaning like move further away, she would hear you giggling. Yeah. And so it's funny because she claims that you've always had this warped sense of humor, which is probably partially true. But then the way you're telling it is also like you were also it's nature and nurture. Like you wanted if there was a really sad event that put a heavy, dark cloud on your family. And understandably, because you love your parents, you want to make them happy and you made did these silly ridiculous things and it must have worked somewhat for you to continue Mm. yeah yeah i don't know you'll have to ask them i guess but Mm -hmm. i mean i still do that i'll still like hammer a joke into the ground to make my mom 
laugh and go, what is wrong with you? <laughs> because it's like, I don't know. Just and I know you appreciate, you would prefer us to laugh, but when we don't laugh, even that re reaction of, like, oh what God. is wrong with you? Like, oh my goodness, that was, that, that, that was a really bad joke. It still brings a bit of a release and... I know that you want some kind of acknowledgement that there was something really stupid and silly out there. Oh, yeah. And just to acknowledge it. And that that's part of life. Yeah. 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 Well, I think um, a lot of it is about observation, too, mm. you know, um, like with my impressions and stuff. Like, I love doing impressions of people. Um. And I think that starting off doing that just is like, I, I don't, I don't even know why I do it. You know, it's, it's a way, I guess, for me to embody that other person mm. because um, I love that other person so much that like for a brief two, you know, sentence or two sentences or whatever, I can like become that person mm -hmm. and like, really do it's almost like i'm i'm um proving to that person how much i'm how i'm like uh observing them mm -hmm. because the cl the closer my impression is to the truth the mm -hmm. more that i think it's surprising to people right and they're like oh my god like do it first i think it's do i sound like that and then it's <laughs> oh yes i do sound like that and then it's like oh god i sound like that <laughs> you know um so yeah and, and i i try to carry that through all of the different um media that i do you know like i had an art teacher that was teaching the class how to how to draw you know and it was a still life so it was you know apple and candles and stuff and it was like, she had said, you know, make sure that, so what you're doing is you're using your eye to trace the object. And then your, your hand is doing that same thing. So you're constantly looking, looking at each contour, tracing it, um, and, and replicating it by drawing. Um, and then, you know, with music, um, I had, uh, I've I've had sleep problems pretty much all my life, but in middle school, elementary school, maybe middle school, um, my mom had put uh, she bought a CD, uh, Paco, uh, Paco Bell Canon in D, mm -hmm. and she would she would uh, put it on and she would be like to to get myself out of my own head so that I would stop worrying about so many things. She'd be like, okay now. Pick out the, you know, pick out the strings. Okay, do you hear just the strings? Yeah, okay. Just listen to those for a while. Okay, now listen to the horn section. Okay, listen to that, blah, blah, blah. And I think it gave me an, an appreciation um, for the individual instruments and how they played into the larger role of the orchestra. And... The same thing with the drawing. It like forced me to slow down. Um, and and like really look, 
mm. and really listen. Uh, and I think subconsciously those those skills translated into, you know, I I really make an effort to listen in conversations, and I make an effort to look, whether that is you know in my mental spiritual work mm -hmm. um or you know just the appreciation of of beauty whether it's architectural visual um yeah yeah that's so fascinating because the story that you're telling about both drawing the apple in art class with your art teacher's instruction and the way your mom told you to listen to Pecklebell's canon, it's almost like a mindfulness practice, mm. you know, because yeah. we miss out on so much of life and we, our brain fills in the holes of what we think something is. And, you know, part of us having like nervous systems where our ancestors were like nervous mofos, you know? Sure. And those were the ones that survived because they were able to spot out danger and stay safe. And so part of this um, staying safe is that it's a brilliant mechanism that the mind has, but it isn't always helpful for fully getting the most out of life and relationships, which is you want the same thing over and over. You want predictability because mm. unpredictability means unstable, unsafe. So we look at an apple and we're like, okay, like heuristics, you know, like my brain has classified that as an apple. I've seen apples before. I know what apples are. I don't need to think about waste one iota of effort <laughs> and time um, looking at this or, you know, Paco Bell's canon and d it's like it's a very ubic it's like on you know it's in elevators it's in malls it's on like hold music when you call um <clears throat> um call like some customer service number there it's a it can it's a beautiful piece but it could be considered very trite as well right. yeah. and so you yeah. listen to it and you're like eh i heard that melody a thousand times before but to actually slow it down and un appreciate all the different parts yeah. Um. And again, not saying uh, what I'm not saying is please study every apple that you come across. But I'm just saying it's beautiful that it's a mindfulness practice and that you're saying that's a prerequisite. That's a foundation for living life with levity and humor. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's 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 carried through. Like I said, it's it's um, you know, it started as those mindfulness exercises that I didn't know were mindfulness exercises, right. and uh, when, particularly after meeting you and um, really putting words to that, it seemed like I I had like this built-in um, this sort of like. Yeah, it was like a built-in, or it was like, um, you know, like on the Matrix, how they plug in. And he's like, oh, I know Kung Fu. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like I already, I had like some software preloaded. You know what I mean? Um, It's, it's kind of what that felt like. 
Mm. So like, this is familiar. Like I, this makes sense to me. That's super cool that you were being taught. I mean, that's the thing with these like trendy things that science studies. It's like science tends to study natural phenomena. And so I have to believe that if your mom and your teacher who may not consider themselves mindfulness gurus were saying this, that our ancestors, you know, from all different types of backgrounds became aware of this technique and like tapped into it as a way of dealing with the world, you know? Yeah. It's funny too. I, I asked my mom or, you know, I thanked my mom years ago, like, thank you for, you know, doing that exercise with me. And she's like, I, did I? I don't remember that at all. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, yeah. There's that that thing too, where even almost that is kind of like a lesson or whatever, quote unquote, mindfulness, like things that you do for other people may impact them in such a positive way that they'll remember it forever, you know? Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, so continuing on this path of mindfulness and observation as your way of being in the world. Um, just, I know you to be, yes, you do a lot of impressions, but um, you also do a lot of things that amplify the gifts and the beauty that other people bring into the world. And so like one is, I know you do a lot of lighting and camera work, which is literally like shedding a light on and being mm. able to capture the, the value and the beauty and the brilliance that people bring in. Um, you know, yeah, you do a lot of things. One is um, your Wu-Tang mixtapes, how mm -hmm. like you explained it to me as like taking the best of Wu-Tang Clan and like putting all the great, most intense nuggets together back to back to back so people yeah. can appreciate it. And so, yeah, I would just love to hear, yeah, if you want to share how you're carrying out that labor of love now. Doing the the mixtapes is was a labor of love for for myself, um, just because the there are so many members in the Wu Tang Clan, and each of them are very talented in their own right. Um, I and a lot of them are featured on each other's albums. Mm -hmm. So I was like, wouldn't it be cool if I could like make my own Wu Tang album, quote unquote, out of all of these like separate solo tracks? Mm -hmm. So I started doing that and I found out that there are quite a few tracks that I like. Yeah. <laughs> and so let's see, I have eight, 12. I think I have about 15 or 16 mixtapes at this point. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I am sort of a completionist mm -hmm. as well. <laughs> so... I, I don't think I'll stop until I've, uh, m you know, mixed all of these songs that I like together. Mm. I don't know. So you, I mean, and I know growing up, you were a huge woo head. Like mm. you, I remember one funny story about TJ is he, last summer, he went back to Ohio a few times um, where he grew up to help his parents clean out just stuff out of their house because um, they're getting ready to sell it maybe next year. <clears throat> and so, and his dad tends to keep stuff for a long time. 
And so his mom requested TJ's help of just helping them go through a lot of old stuff. And he sent pictures of a lot of stuff that they found, like, you know, wine, unopened wine coolers from the 90s. And it's like, why is this still sitting in the garage in 2023? Anyway, um, one of the pictures. He yeah, sent- Zima, Zima ain't like uh, like a, a, a Cabernet. You know? oh it doesn't goodness. get better no, with age. No. <laughs> And Bartles one of the, James, no. one of the things that he took a picture of was the Wu Tang, the Wu Wear Cologne, and he had that bottle from. What, when did you buy that? High school, college? Uh, I want to say it was probably ninety nine or two thousand, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Two thousand. So yeah, graduating college, going in. I mean, graduating high school, going into mm-hmm. college, that kind of thing. And so, yeah, you say it's a labor of love, like you really love Wu-Tang Clan and their music. You've read all the biographies that um, are out and all that. And it's funny, the reaction that you get from, um, you put them up on YouTube, you have them on Bandcamp, um, but people can listen to it for free Yeah, on YouTube. And what's hilarious for me is just, you have a little fan base. They're your fans because they're Wu Tang Clan, yeah, fans first, right? But they look forward to your album drops. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny. Like after I post uh, one of the mixtapes, I'm I'm just like, okay, I wonder I wonder who's gonna comment on this. What are they gonna say? You know, like I can count on this person to say like you know another another banger or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it's, you know, it's it's no secret that the Wu-Tang are extremely popular. And, you know, what started out as something that I was doing for myself because I wanted to hear it. Um, it's just nice to know that other people appreciate it and they're they're getting something out of it. You know, they're getting enjoyment. They're hearing hearing tracks that they never heard before. Um, you know, it's just it's cool. Uh, yeah, I mean, last week's episode was about was me Shonda and Jay talking about four years of labors of love and where we're going in our fifth year and Jay pointed out like we always say this is a conversation amongst friends that other people um are but you know we're are invited to listen to and Shonda has made no like she's never hid the fact that she does it for herself and I just that that theme is resonating in what you're saying so often in capitalism we're taught to be like shaped and molded into what other people need like fill in somebody else's need and it's like you know what when you do what you love and what you need to get out of your life like that can have reverberating impacts on other people yeah you know yeah definitely um I don't know. I think, um, again, with that observation, like a lot of perspective that I gained has been through art and music and film, mm. you know, like I didn't grow up in the eighties, uh, you know, in the, uh, Park Hill projects, mm-hmm. you know, but when I listened to, you know, Raekwon or Inspector Deck talk about it in such, you know, eloquent and also blunt at the same time mm. you know it, it it 
paints this picture, you know, it gives me these feelings, you know, where I wasn't there directly, but I understand this person and what they went through. Yeah, you know? it kind of goes back to what you were saying before about why you like to make jokes and like why you love metaphor and simile and all of that. It's like sometimes that can hit you harder in places than like a factual nonfiction like essay, like the way that we write news journalism. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like there, there's a place for that. I'm not saying it's bad, but um, to me, I don't know how you experience it but when i hear these factual things it's kind of hitting me in my head and it's um stimulating like the uh, logic parts of me that but it may it may start like reverberating on some emotional level but it's not like a very loud frequency but when someone tells me an image or a metaphor along with those facts and figures it just like hits me all over like in my body in my heart in my spirit and my mind and it becomes this like undeniable truth about the world that i need to engage in that i need to be aware of mm. it's the um you know the chorus and songs are called the hook right because mm -hmm. it, it hooks you in you know, it makes you want to listen to the song again and again because it's catchy. Right. And then in the verses is where you're dropping the knowledge. Mm. Right. So people are coming for the chorus. They're coming for that hook. And then while they're there, you hit them with the knowledge. That's a good point. And it's funny what stays with you. Mm. Usually people only remember the chorus of catchy songs. Right. But there is, a, they may not be able to recall all the, specific lyrics of a verse but when they're humming that chorus that stored memory that somatic memory that lived experience of hearing the verses is still there mm -hmm. and they're connecting with that experience yeah well memory connected to audio stimuli mm -hmm. and uh like smells those are two of the most powerful memory recalls yeah, you know, you've seen the video of the dement, the this old lady who was, uh, uh, I think she was like a a ballerina, mm -hmm. but she was like I don't know ninety something, and just she had dementia, but then they played music for her, and she like actually like came, started being more engaged and like was able to tap into her memory of that song, so like yeah, that's really powerful stuff. Yeah. Well, um, I know that we're starting to wind down our time. And so I just want to ask, um, is there something that I didn't ask about or that you didn't get to say that you just want to talk about for a few minutes? Um, do you want me to talk about where I grew up or anything? Whatever you'd like to. <clears throat> I mean, I know I find that fascinating that someone who was born and raised where you were ended up who you are <laughs> mm. um yeah well i grew up in i grew up in akron ohio um we eventually moved to like a suburb um but i didn't really live when you think of suburb i think of like uh edward scissorhands mm. where it's just like every house is identical and right there's 
that's all there are is just houses. Mm -hmm. So I lived on like a main road. I had one neighbor that was um, my, you know, my best friend growing up. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, we were in the Rust Belt. So there was, it was urban decay everywhere. Just these giant abandoned buildings in various states of disrepair. So that, you know, eventually I was like, why are all these build number one, why are these buildings here? Mm-hmm. Why did somebody build these? Why are they in such disrepair? Um, and it's, yeah, I mean, it's because it was a huge hub for tire manufacturing. Mm-hmm. The same way that Detroit manufactured cars, right? Pittsburgh manufactured steel. Um, and then all that, all that stuff got shipped overseas, you know, because the profit margin had to increase for the shareholders at the cost of, you know, people, you know, middle, lower class people. And, uh, yeah, the whole, I mean, like the whole, it seemed like people's personalities reflected the decaying architecture, Mm. you know, where it was like, Oh, you're, you're hopeful. (laughs) Ha. You, you're foolish. Like, look at look at where your hope, you know, like got you. Yeah, yeah. It's like you were sold out. Yeah. You know, we've been sold out. Um, so there was always that kind of de- depress- depressive nature around everything, and I think maybe as a, a an, another direct result of that, it was like. Can I, you know, I can add to this depression or I can add to trying to lighten mm-hmm. this. Um, and I didn't have like, you know, a terrible childhood or anything. Mm-hmm. It was, it was pretty good as far as, you know, other stories that I've heard. Um, and also I was just kind of tired of that. You know, just living living amongst all of the kind of people complaining about living where they're living mm-hmm. in their living situations. Right. Um, yeah, just like the absurdity of somebody complaining constantly but never doing anything about it, mm-hmm. I think. Um, I think it at first it um, it was humorous to mm-hmm. me. But that kind of wore off mm. and I just got tired of it and I yeah. just wanted to move where I could utilize my skill set. And Yeah, but what's um really compelling about the way you shared that story is the part where you said like literally the rust belt architecture, the entire environment was like crushing people's spirits yeah you know and then you bringing up like and why because we're putting profit before people yeah and then it was clear to me like driving by it every single day you know it's like a constant reminder and then that um and like you relating like i get it this is really fucked up and depressing. And then it's like the repeated analysis. We could say 
like complaints could be like legitimate venting, you know, mm -hmm. legitimate sharing sure. of a lived experience, but then never doing anything about it is tiring. And it's like, that's exactly ironically, we tend to think of complaining as rebelling against the system of like, I'm going to critique the system, which is great, great starting mm -hmm. point. Then when you stay there, it's like, that's exactly what the system wants you to do. Yeah. Sit on your butt and continue complaining as your only coping mechanism instead of divesting from the system and building something different from yourself. And so in that sense, like, I don't blame the people that you encounter. It's to me, that's just like sad. Yeah. Because it's like in this really ironic way, they're doing exactly the opposite of what they stand for, which is they've completely internalized all the de-evolution to the point that there's zero hope. I'm glad you said that word, de-evolution. Um, yeah, and I mean, it's why people vote against their best interests in Ohio still, for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, you want to say more about that? Because, um, I mean, yeah. <laughs> to be clear, PG and I are not ragging on Ohio. We know many wonderful people there, including sure. our beautiful co-host Shonda and our producer Jay. Mm -hmm. And you're talking about something real that exists in the Rust Belt. It's not just Ohio. It's throughout the Rust Belt. Yeah. So what are you referring to? Well, yeah, I mean, you can drill down into it of this us versus them type thing where it's... um. People feel like they are culturally different, and so they have to cast their cultural vote for a certain party. Do you think it's culture or something else? Um, I think it's something else, but they think it's culture. Yeah. I, I experience it as xenophobia, racism, and a whole bunch of other things. Yeah. You know? But I'm not from Ohio. I grew up in New York. And so that was always fascinating to me of growing up low income, like, you know, just below the just above the poverty line. That like, yeah, why can't we all get along? Like, isn't what you said, like exploitation of people for profit, the real problem here and then quickly discovered like white supremacy will not allow you to yeah you know yeah band together i mean that's that's exactly what it is what were we talking about before that i feel like i had i had a thread where i was going and i lost it oh this is what i wanted to say yeah just this fact that everybody felt uh like they needed to complain about their situation but not never do anything about it mm -hmm. um i think that's probably why i gravitated towards music genres like hip-hop mm -hmm. or or punk rock mm -hmm. because there was that sort of do-it-yourself yeah there was that sort of do-it-yourself attitude of like there's like some pretty radical art that was made uh you know in hip-hop and in punk um so that it was like you know i don't know i think that that inspired me um as far as seeing what other people have done you know in circumstances that were much more dire than the circumstances of, you know, me or people around me who are complaining. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I guess, I don't know. That's why I never really bought that. I don't know. Yeah. And this goes back to, again, this idea of do live your life for you, express yourself, and you never know how it'll impact. I mean, for all intents and purposes, Wu-Tang Clan did not write their music for you to share the story. You know, their audience mm -hmm. was their immediate themselves and their friends and their immediate neighborhood and but it has reverberated their music has resonated throughout the world yeah. and you're just one story of like hey people have had hard circumstances worse circumstances and that's not to negate anything bad someone's experiencing but it's like there's another path out right like, there's another path through right yeah, so, it's it's expression, whether it's music, film, art, whatever, you know. That's that's what I've found anyway. Yeah. That's super cool. Well, this has been so fun um chatting with you about this. And I have a feeling um we're gonna bring you back because I feel like you and Shonda and Jay would have really great conversations about some of this um and so as we get ready to wrap up just want to ask a question we always ask all our guests wrapping up if people want to connect with you and your work or just learn more about you or get in touch um how where they where can they find you yeah so if you want to see um a lot of the videos that i will uh be editing or filming uh, or lighting you can go to the hammer channel it's uh, the Hammer Museum. If you just type Hammer Channel into Google, you can see all of their uh, public programs. Does a lot of varying uh, cool. They have a lot of cool guests. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, as far as uh, the Wu-Tang mixtapes, um, if you go to uh, Bandcamp, uh, my DJ name is Stay Puffed. S-T-A-Y-P-U-F-T. It's actually a dollar sign instead mm -hmm. of an S. We'll, we'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah, and um, you can also listen to them on YouTube. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, TJ, and sharing with us your labor of love. This has been super fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was great. Um, and as we head out, I, as usual, I just want to thank my amazing founding co-host, Shonda Sugg. Um, wishing her well on her current adventures today and um, Jay Sugg our producer from Instant Classic Media, Trey Angel for the beautiful music and Stephanie uh, just Spencer for our social media and thank you all for listening until next time be well <laughs> <laughs>